is there a new dynasty in college football? I think the question has been asked by several people that sit in chairs similar to this. Has Georgia officially risen to the top of the college football world? Winning a championship is great. Backing it up in the second year is even more impressive. Hello and welcome in. Today is Thursday, December 8th. It's always college football. I'm your host, Greg McElroy, alongside Mark Kubiak and Jack Foster. We really appreciate you being with us from wherever it is you're coming to us from. Whether it's the podcast or ESPN's YouTube page, please like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out, helps the show out, helps us out even more when you hit us up in our social media at AlwaysCFB. We see you coming to us from all over the place. We get all the rundowns of whatnot, where the podcasts are being downloaded from. We got all sorts of places that are now coming and listening to all this college football. Our numbers have grown dramatically over the course of the season. So let's keep that momentum going and we can do that with your help. We have a great game plan in store for you today, including a fairly significant coaching move that was made public, even though you had heard whispers, you had heard some whispers over the last couple of weeks about the possibility of a very specific coach coming home. We'll talk about that. We're also going to start a new series, our Throwback Thursday series, where we're going to talk about a playoff team, kind of go week to week and evaluate their performance from week to week, which had led to them to becoming a playoff team. Today's edition are the Georgia Bulldogs. We start at the top with the number one team. Is there a new dynasty in college football is another question that we'll have answered. And we're going to dive into a little game we call low-hanging fruit. Don't want to miss that. Let's talk about it. All right. Here is the actual vernacular from the Cards Chronicle. I feel like they would properly be able to sum up the move that's happening here of released was announced to be potentially happening on Tuesday night. Jeff Brom is finally coming home. I thought that it was appropriate. I mean, the Cards Chronicle, where else will we get our information on Louisville football, right? That's where we're at. Jeff Brom is coming home. And he's coming home as a wealthy, wealthy man. He's leaving a Big Ten job in Purdue, where he did a great job, I might add. Purdue's a difficult gig. He, of course coached them up to the Big Ten championship game, had a nice nine-win season a year ago. Like He's been able to back it up, and there's a lot to be proud of with what he did at Purdue, but it's time. Six years, $35 million, That's according to ESPN's Chris Lowe. So he's going to be paid handsomely, but he was already being paid handsomely. They say at Purdue, now this is a private school, they say it was somewhere in the vicinity of $5 million a year. So somewhat comparable as far as salary is concerned. For a guy with leverage... He probably could have taken Louisville to the cleaners, but he didn't. Maybe he gave them a hometown discount, if you will. So he becomes the 23rd head coach in the history of Louisville Cardinal football program. And I think what's exciting about this is that he now comes back during a time in which it feels as if Louisville can still get an awful lot done. Remember, he's born and raised in Louisville. He starred at Trinity High School and became one of the most coveted high school quarterback recruits in the country. Basically, everyone recruited him, and Jeff Brom opted to stay home. Same exact program that his dad, Oscar, had played for. And of course, he has other siblings that have played there as well. Now, he was there back in the early 90s from 89 to 93. Howard Schnellenberger helped take the program to new heights that were previously unfathomable. 
And as a senior, he led Louisville to a 9-3 and season and a win over Michigan State in the Liberty Bowl where he earned the MVP honor. So he knows what it's supposed to look like at Louisville at the highest possible levels. Of course, he then went on to have a really nice career in the NFL. And then when he started his coaching career, where did he start? At Louisville. So this is a guy that understands what it takes to be successful. He's been well-traveled too. He's been at FAU. He's been at UAB. He was the head coach at Western Kentucky almost 10 years ago. Uh, went 30-10 and 10 at Western Kentucky. He helped win 12 games in a conference championship in the second year. So he has obviously done an awful lot at places at previous stops. Here's what I'm excited about for Louisville fans. One, Jeff Brom has a proven track record of finding and developing quarterbacks. Did a really nice job most recently with Aiden O'Connell. Aiden O'Connell was, of course, a sixth-year player, kind of just a, a self-made guy that just worked his tail off and got better and better and better. But he had David Blau before that. And he also was able to recruit Rondale Moore. He's also been able to recruit and highlight Charlie Jones in this past year. So he is now, I think, at Louisville, maybe even have better access to great receiver personnel and hopefully really good quarterback personnel given his track record. All right, that's the first thing. Two, he is extremely creative when it comes to XO game planning, meaning he's thoughtful when it comes to trick plays. He knows when to call them. I might add some coaches don't know when to call him. Jeff Brom does. He's elite when it comes to screen game. When you look at the offensive line that he had at Purdue for quite a while, not great. They had a difficult time recruiting offensive linemen that could just mow people off the ball. So he had to adapt. And how do you take some of the pressure off your offensive line with great XO, with great scheme, with great screen, scheme and screen. Say that close. It's not an easy thing to say back to back. So he did a really good job. He also, uh, is universally respected. Here's number three, universally respected within the field of coaching. Remember, this is a guy that turned down Nick Saban's coordinator spot a couple of times, supposedly. That's a, all alleged, but it's been documented that he was high on the list for Nick Saban. And if Nick Saban tips his cap to that offensive coordinator and that offensive mind, you know he's doing something for you. Now, how does he get things going at Louisville? Well, we know what he's done in six seasons at Purdue. Uh, remember, when he took over at Purdue, they had lost 30 of 33 Big Ten games prior to his arrival. All right. He's now, in the six years that he's been there, taken them to four bowl games. That is pretty dang remarkable. It's a significant turnaround. And he has led, obviously, the Boilermakers to back to back eight win seasons. It's the first time that's been done in nearly 25 years. That was back in 96, 97 when they last won back-to-back eight-win season. So he has done an awful lot in his time at Purdue, which makes you think he's going to do an awful lot in his time at Louisville. A couple of things that make me very optimistic. One, the ACC is gettable. Now it's in a very difficult division. Well, the good news is division's going away. So the ACC is gettable. There is upward mobility. Look at North Carolina last year. Disappointing season. This year, they're playing in the ACC championship game. There is upward mobility to be had in the ACC. I also think too, a guy that is from Louisville, that has lived in Louisville, that grew up in Louisville, that understands what it's like to don that Cardinals uniform is even better going to be able to relate to recruits than any other coach before him. Even those that had an established track record of success. There's been plenty of those, but those that have had an established track record of success, success, you got to think this will be 
the best hire, arguably, in Louisville history. I'm not trying to be like prisoner of the moment. Bobby Petrino was great, won a lot of games. There have been other great coaches. But you got to think with the pedigree, with the fact that it's his alma mater, with the current state of the ACC, it feels like this is poised to become a massive breakthrough. I think you can get better, and I think you can get better in a hurry. Louisville had great moments in the last handful of years. The problem is they also had some really disappointing moments as well. You've seen Louisville play really well, and you've seen him play really poorly. Now with Jeff Brom, you're probably going to get something that's a little bit more predictable as far as their week-in, week-out performance is concerned. I couldn't be more excited for Louisville fans. It felt like things had soured on Scott Satterfield. Even though he won this year, it felt like things were not going in the right direction. It was good for both Scott Satterfield and for Louisville to get a fresh start. And now they bring home the alumnus, Jeff Brom, to lead their program into the future. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code FIRSTTAKE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more More than than ever. ever. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to gamble responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. This U.S. promotional offer not available in D.C., Mississippi, North Carolina, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369 for New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. For Massachusetts, 1-800-327-5050. For Iowa, 1-800-BETS-OFF. For Puerto Rico, 1-800-981-0023. For West Virginia, Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. First bet offer for new customers only. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence. The confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and the fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. Is there a new dynasty in college football? I think the question has been asked by several people that sit in chairs similar to this. Has Georgia officially risen to the top of the college football world? Winning a championship is great. Backing it up in the second year? is even more impressive. And remember, this program was a long second 26 pass away from potentially winning another national championship. So they were this close to have won a championship in 17, a championship in 21, and now could very well back it up here in 2022 with yet another championship. We shall see. This has been a remarkable run for Kirby Smart. And I think that it's even more impressive given where the world is at right now. You know how hard it is to lose the pieces that Kirby Smart lost off last year's team. We all know the numbers, the amount of draftees, the amount of guys that were taken in the first round, the pieces that needed to be replaced. It was almost an unthinkable task, an unthinkable task to assume that they'd be able to replace those players and still be able to recreate the same results. But I think what's fascinating about this Georgia team is that it's almost been beneficial to 
have those guys from last year, those incredibly talented players, maybe arguably one of the most talented rosters we've ever seen. It might have actually worked to their benefit to have those guys depart. Why? Because it created an edge for all those talented newcomers, for all those guys that were highly recruited, that played sparingly last year, they were now going to be thrust into the starting lineup. Yes, they had national championship rings, but they were hardly the reason why they won the national championship. They were depth on a roster that was supremely talented. Now they're impact players on a roster that is still supremely talented. Let's go game by game with where Georgia's at and what allowed them to rise back up to the top of the college football world. Let's start with week one. What a statement to go out and to play. And at this point, look, a lot of people came out of the week one game and they were saying what we were all saying, like, well, Oregon's not very good. Clearly, they got issues, right? We thought at the time, well, yes, Georgia looks phenomenal, but Really, was that more about Georgia or was that more about Oregon? That's what we always ask, right? They're at least early going. Like, is it more about one team's greatness or another team's failures? Well, what we didn't know at that time was that Oregon was going to go on like an eight game win streak and really turn things around, only solidifying our belief that Georgia is the real deal. It was amazing, I think, in this game. We knew that they'd be pretty good offensively. They brought back so many quality pieces, even the pieces that they lost. You weren't going to lose a whole lot of sleep over some of the pieces. Like You see a guy like Jermaine Burton leave. It's like, okay, well, I think they'll probably be okay because you got Lad McConkey, you got A.D. Mitchell. You got some talented backs that were going to be stepping into new roles. A lot of people were saying that Milton and McIntosh were actually more talented than James Cook and Zamir White. Now, I don't know if I'd go that far, but a lot of people were saying that, and they said the offensive line probably won't skip much of a beat, even though they lost some really good players off of last year's team. The big question mark, though, was on the defensive side. We knew that Christopher Smith was going to be the real deal. We thought that Jamon Dumas-Johnson was going to be the real deal. You knew Keely Ringo was going to be pretty dang good on the perimeter. You thought there was a possibility with some of the other pieces there in the back end that they'd be really good at the safety spot. But we weren't sure exactly what to expect. And boy, were they impressive. Offensively, completely dynamic. Defensively, massive shutdown performance. And you saw Stetson Bennett a totally different guy this year, really even from week one to where he was, even at his best last year, you saw just a more confident player, a guy that had already achieved so much, came back playing freely like he was playing with house money, man. Had nothing to lose, already had a championship, so we're in good shape, man. I'm going to let it all go, throw caution to the wind, and I'm going to let it rip on the biggest possible stage. He got it off to an amazing start. They followed it up with a nice performance against Sanford. That was, by the way, Sanford's only loss in the regular season. So I know Sanford's an FCS team. Pretty dang good FCS team, I might add. Number four in the country going into the playoffs. Georgia beat them 33-0. Not quite as convincing as the game against Oregon, but still convincing nonetheless. Then you moved on to week three against South Carolina. And this is a game a lot of people had circled. A lot of people looking at South Carolina saying, hey, man, with Spencer Rattler, with some of the weapons that they have offensively, like this could be a little bit of a tricky spot for a team that's breaking in some new pieces on the defensive side. That wasn't the case. They went out and absolutely pummeled 
South Carolina in week three of the football season. Spencer Rattler was held on 25 attempts to just 118 yards and a couple interceptions. Stetson was again very efficient. The running game was for the most part not great for Georgia in this game. When you look at the box score, Stetson Bennett was the leading rusher, had three carries for 36, but the rest of the group, really not so great. Kendall Milton was kind of held in check. McIntosh was, for the most part, held in check. They didn't get a ton of opportunities. We did get to learn a little more about Dejon Edwards at this point, found out that he might be a capable piece, a guy that could contribute very much in the game as well. But of course, a ton of time for the backups in this one too, because it got sideways 48-7, another remarkable performance from the Georgia Bulldogs. Then they hit what we would call like a little bit of a mid-season swoon, right? Wasn't their best stuff against Kent State. Kent State was able to find the end zone. It wasn't a great performance, especially in the first half of that football game. It kind of carried over into the next week when they played on the road at Missouri in what was arguably their toughest test of the season as far as how they played and what needed to be done for them to be able to ultimately win the game. What was most impressive, they were sitting there down 16-6 to at halftime. It was not going good. They were not running the ball. They had a difficult time with that front of Missouri. They were sliding, and they were moving, and they couldn't get much going through the year. So at halftime, it was like, we got to adjust. We got to make some changes. Defensively, they completely shut down Missouri at that point. They didn't find the end zone again. They held them to just six points in the second half of that football game. And they put together 20 of their own, including 14 in the fourth quarter. With the back against the wall in a gotta-have-it situation, it was a remarkably poised performance on the road after not having your best stuff in the fourth quarter of that football game. All the pressure, so much to lose, so much to possibly be undone. And then you find yourself in a gotta have a situation. You put together not one, but two drives in the fourth quarter to ultimately win the game 26-22. That was where we learned. We knew they had talent. We knew they could dominate, but would they be able to respond to adversity? The answer after that week was a resounding yes. You go forward, you take care of Auburn, kind of a ho-hung game. It was an impressive performance, a dominant performance against Auburn. Not the most jaw-dropping performance statistically, but very impressive 32-point beatdown of the Auburn Tigers. You fast forward then to Vanderbilt. This was the time of the year when no one was really talking about Georgia. There was like a three-week period after the Missouri game. You've Fast forward into the Auburn game, you fast forward into the Vanderbilt game, and then you have a bye week. So it's like there was a four-week period when no one was talking about Georgia, and yet they were sitting there in the top five, clearly, with what they'd done up to that point. But there was a time which we really didn't make them front-page news. Then they came out against Florida. Florida, not a great team at this point, but obviously a rivalry game, but an opportunity for Georgia to get back in the mix and get back in the headlines. I thought Stetson played pretty well in the game. Wasn't a great performance by any stretch, both offensively and defensively. Remember, it got close there in the second half of that football game, and then Georgia put their foot down on the pedal and pulled away to make that game a little bit more one-sided. Here was the week, though, that we really started to believe Georgia is definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, the best team in college football. That was when they played against Tennessee. Tennessee, coming into that game, had been a complete juggernaut. They had dominated everybody on their schedule, with the exception of Alabama, and they won that game in a shootout. Not only did they not get going against Georgia's offense, but they couldn't really get going against Georgia's defense as well. Just 13 points in the performance, the first 
points of the game were scored by Tennessee, and that was because of a turnover. And next thing you know, they turned it into a field goal, a 47-yard field goal. But from that point forward, it was all Georgia. They outscored them 27-10 to 10 down the stretch, and one of those touchdowns was in garbage time when they were down 21 points. With four minutes left in the game, they scored a touchdown to make it not look as bad, but that game could have been sideways and could have been sideways in a hurry if not for some rain in the forecast there in the second half of the football game. Stetson played really smart, played composed, did a great job staying within the offense, thought they didn't have to do a whole lot in the second half. There was no reason to put themselves in harm's way, but it was a solid, dominant performance against Tennessee. That at point, they were the number one team in the country, and they made a statement in a game that even though it was only 14 points at the final deficit, the final margin, it felt like 40. That's how one-sided that game was. Fast forward to the final month of the season, Road win at Mississippi State, a very impressive performance. A game against Kentucky that kind of left most people, self-included, kind of scratching their head. It looked lethargic. The passing game was atrocious. They couldn't get a whole lot going throughout the course of the game offensively through the year. McIntosh stepped up in a really big way, and I thought that was really the moment where it's like, all right, even when the offense isn't clicking, the defense was able to completely lock things down, harass Will Levis from start to finish, and completely stymie any semblance of a rushing attack. They dominated Kentucky, their defense against Kentucky's offense, but it wasn't a great performance and they made Georgia one-dimensional. So that was a moment which I felt like Georgia could probably grow from that performance. Fast forward against Georgia Tech, very slow start, but man, as soon as they hit their engines, they were out the gate and it became 37-7 very quickly before Georgia Tech put another touchdown in there late. And then finally against LSU in the SEC championship game, they really left no doubt in the game. I thought Stetson had one of his best performances of the season. Very steady, very solid. 23 of 29, 20, 274 yards and four touchdowns all in the first half of that football game. They ran away and played keep away. Didn't play as well in the second half, but they didn't need to. Obviously, they had well, well exceeded expectations there in the second half of the football game. So they kind of took their foot off the gas. Nussmeyer hit a couple big plays. Georgia is by far the best team in the country right now. They can potentially lose in the semifinal game against Ohio State. They could lose against both TCU and Michigan, but they are the best team. And I think in order for them to be upset in a semifinal or a championship game setting, they're going to have to mess up meaning they're going to have to turn it over. They're going to have to play really poorly defensively. They're going to have to miss tackles. They're going to have to blow coverages. This team, if they play their A game, they will win yet another national championship. So I go back to the original question. Is a new dynasty upon us in college football? I think with a win, you can make a strong argument that, yes, a new dynasty is upon us. But at the same time, I think being able to back up what they did last year is as impressive in a me first, I'm about me, got to protect mine, not worried about the team. I'm going to take care of me. That's kind of the mentality at so many places in college football. You see it everywhere on championship contenders and on teams that are 1-11. There are a lot of guys in the locker room that are about them. Georgia, for whatever reason, they might have those guys, but man, they're quiet. You don't hear as much about the guys that are suiting up every week for the Georgia Bulldogs. It feels like a team-first approach, and they certainly play like it, and they've dominated just about everybody they've played this year. And in a gotta-have-it situation, if I have to win a game in college football right now and for the foreseeable future, it'd be hard to pick anyone other than the Georgia Bulldogs. 
Macro, is this the quietest number one team? Like, it feels like all year, George has been one, two, one, and nobody talks about him. Is this exactly what Kirby wants? And, like, I, I'm trying to rack my brain, like, go back 20 years. I haven't heard of a team on the cusp of a dynasty talked about less than Georgia. Well, I, we talked about it a moment ago. I mean, there was a four-week period where it was kind of after the Missouri game leading up to the Florida game or even the Tennessee game where they're just, they weren't really front page news. It was like, all right, well, Georgia's going to win. They're favored by three touchdowns. Like we'll, we'll talk about them when they're going to be tested. Right. Like that was kind of it. And it just was one of those teams where they came out in such a hot start, but the schedule in, you know, in their defense, I mean, the schedule frankly has not really provided great competition. Yes, you beat the number one team in the country in Tennessee, but that week, man, that's all we talked about was Georgia-Tennessee. Name another game this year where that was the most talked about game leading into the game. Like Oregon and Georgia in week one was probably the fourth most talked about game or the third most talked about game behind Notre Dame and Ohio State, LSU and Florida State, other week one matchups that were a little bit more closely contested. But leading up to it, they never really had the number one game with the exception of one week. And that to me is a little bit rare because Florida, Georgia is usually top billing. You have a game against maybe Auburn that in a normal year would be top billing. You have obviously a game against a potential top 10 team in Oregon that would normally in a given week be top billing, but it just happened to go against Notre Dame and Ohio State. Both teams were in the top five that day leading into that game. So for whatever reason, just the way the schedule fell this year, with the exception, like I said, of the Georgia and Tennessee game, that was really the only game in which they were top billing. So they're going to be top billing in the semifinal. So we're going to have a ton of buildup and lead up into the Peach Bowl. That'll be an amazing game against number four, Ohio State. And you have two massive fan bases that will certainly be talked about and will Make sure that I'm sure all the networks will be talking about this game far more than they'll be talking about the game that's going to be played in Phoenix. The game in Atlanta is certainly going to captivate an audience. So I look at it and I think that while they have maybe slid a little bit under the radar, it's because they've been just so dang steady. So no news is good news if you're the Georgia Bulldogs right now because they're playing at a ridiculously high level. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. All right, moving on now to a segment that we like to play a couple times a week. Let's do some low-hanging fruit. Coops, what do you got? All right, first one, we just talked about Georgia. 
If Georgia loses to the second best Big Ten team, the narrative will shift that the SEC is overrated. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Truth. (laughs) No doubt. That's going to be the reaction. Now, on our show, we don't really look at teams as being overrated, underrated. Like we, I feel like we're pretty fair. I mean, I, I don't really... You want full disclosure? I really don't care what league you're in. Like, I think, for instance, like I think TCU is really good and a lot of people don't think the Big 12 is very good. Like in recent years, I think Clemson's really good. A lot of people think the only reason Clemson's good is because the ACC is not. Like I, I don't really subscribe to, well... One school's bad, so that league's bad. Their championship, their champion stinks, so they stink. Like, no, I don't really subscribe to that. I kind of evaluate every single school on their own. So, if Georgia loses to Ohio State, is that a reflection of the SEC? To me, it's not. It's a reflection of Georgia. If Ohio State wins the national championship, is that a reflection of the Big Ten? No, it's just a reflection on Ohio State. Like that's usually because I've looked at, for instance, Clemson. Clemson's won two national championships in the last six or seven years. Well, when Clemson wins a national championship, and they have, does that mean that the ACC is good? No, just means that Clemson's good. You know what I mean? Like that year, right? I'm obviously like I'm sure there were in sixteen and eighteen. I'm sure there were good. ACC teams. I don't know. I don't, I don't keep track of those like off the top of my head. You know what I mean? What I'm getting at is there is always a very strong reaction to conference supremacy argument based on the outcome of bowl games. And there's always a really strong reaction, especially when it comes to the playoff. Like for instance, 2015, probably the best example when Bama beat Michigan State 35, 37, 38, nothing, whatever it was. They blanked them. It was a complete beatdown. Was that a reflection on the Big Ten? No, because if Ohio State were in Michigan State's shoes that day, I think they would have been way more competitive. Would they have won the game? I don't think so, but they would have been way more competitive. So it's purely a reflection of one school, not the bigger picture. I think some people like to bang their chest when things are going good. Like if the SEC goes out this year and they go, say, 11-1 and in bowl games, SEC fans are going to pound the table and say, the SEC is the best. See, look at our bowl record. Well, we've seen that from the Big 12 too. Like the Big 12's performed really, really well in bowl games, but doesn't mean they're necessarily the best league. We've seen teams go out like the Pac-12 and go like 1-8 and in bowl games. Does that mean the Pac-12's awful? No, it just means that they had a bowl, bad bowl season and they had bad matchups in the individual bowl games. So it's truth because people will react to it, but it's low-hanging fruit because they shouldn't react to it. Is that a fair way of answering that? Yes, and completely accurate. Well done. All right, the next one. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Bowl season has lost its luster because of all the opt-outs of players. Truth. It's, and by the way, they're not opt outs. There's guys that quit. That's the way, that's the term I use. I know it's a, it's an opt out is not negative. Like, I, first of all, I don't care if you quit. That's your choice. Like, kind of like what we just talked about with the bowl season, like with bowl overreaction. 
Like it's your decision. I'm going to evaluate you as an individual when it comes to bowl season. Like if you choose not to play, that's your choice. I term it quitting. Some others term it opting out. If you choose to quote quit, that's on, that's your choice. I'm not mad at you for it. That's your choice. So I don't use the same vernacular as other people do. To me, it's quitting. You don't finish what you started, you quit. Simple as that. Uh, It's all good. Um, The other thing is I would say, to me, I like bowl season because they're exhibitions and I know it's celebratory for the regular season accomplishment. People say, well, six and six, it's a participation trophy. Like, fine. Like, first of all, I don't care if the teams are six and six or 10 and two. If I have an extra football game on, if it starts at noon Eastern on Thursday, December 16th or Friday, December 16th, guess what? I'm watching it. Want to know why? Because it's better than watching the Maury show and figure out, figuring out whether or not you are the father. Like, I don't care about those shows. Like, it's better than watching Midday Sports Center. It's better than watching any other show that would be on at noon on a Friday. Like I love bowl season because I want as many football games as I can consume. And ultimately, people say that bowl games don't matter. I would strongly disagree with that. Like remember Jim Harbaugh a couple years back? This was like 2018 or in that vicinity. Like it was the beginning of the happiness with Jim Harbaugh. They get to the bowl game. They're playing against South Carolina. This is a Will Muschamp-led South Carolina team. They had a huge lead. They were pounding South Carolina, just pounding South Carolina. Well, next thing you know, South Carolina comes all the way back and wins the game. People destroyed Jim Harbaugh for that for eight months before the next season. And I think no matter whether no no matter how you feel about bowl games and their importance because players play or don't play or they're in the portal or whatnot like your perception as a coach and or a program and or the goodwill that can be generated for an 8 month talking season you can learn a lot from a bowl game and you can also learn a lot about your younger players that are maybe thrust into a role or maybe they blossom like go back and look at the 2015 bowl game that Louisville played in. They played against Texas A&M. I remember it vividly, and I remember watching this quarterback by the name of Lamar Jackson. Like, dude, this guy's got he's got some juice. Well, sure enough, a year later, they win a lot of games, and Lamar Jackson wins the Heisman Trophy. So you can learn a lot in the bowl games if you just watch them and watch them all. Because to me, I think bowl games are a great indicator of program health. At times, not all the time. If you go out and lay an egg, it doesn't mean your program's awful. There's been plenty of eggs laid and your program has bounced back the next year and won championships. But I do think it's an indicator of program health. And I do think it's an indicator of what type of young talent you might have on the roster. All right. Speaking of the bowl games, despite missing the playoffs, the Pac-12 can come out of bowl season with the most momentum heading into 2023 season. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Truth. Um... Because when you miss the playoff, for instance, the Pac-12 champion is going to the Rose Bowl, right? That's the Pac-12 number one pick. So their champion is going to the Rose Bowl. And then 
on down the list, right? Well, the Big Ten, for instance, they have their third place team playing in the Rose Bowl. And then everybody in the Big Ten has slid up two spots from their normal allotment. So the Big Ten might ultimately have a bad bowl season. Why? Because they have their third best team playing against the Pac-12's best team. And then in the Florida Bowl games that the Big Ten has ties to, they have their you know, their fourth and fifth and sixth best team playing against the third and fourth and fifth best teams from the SEC and the ACC or whatever the bowl allotments may be. So sometimes when you kind of slide them on down the list, it can have an impact on the perception of your league. But I look at the bowl season for the Pac-12, and when you have your champion go into your number one bowl allotment, sometimes you're going to have favorable matchups across the board. So I, I think the Big Twelve, the Pac-12, excuse me, could end up, you know, on the other side of this bowl season, feeling pretty good about the momentum that's been created, and pretty good about some of the narratives that might surround the pro, uh, the league throughout the offseason in 2023. All right, last one here. Low-hanging fruit or truth, the Heisman has lost its luster. Back-to-back luster questions. I'm great with that. Uh, Truth, the Heisman has massively lost its luster. Um, And we'll, we'll spend a little more time on this. I have a few ideas on the Heisman. Um... I am a voter, have been a voter for eight years. When I first got a vote, I had no business getting a vote. Like I was new to the industry, didn't deserve one, but I got one anyways. That's probably part of the problem. There's way too many people with votes. There's way too many people that are fanboys that vote. There's way too many people that don't live and breathe the sport the way they should that ultimately end up voting. Like for instance, like there's another podcaster that's on ESPN's YouTube page that I have a really good relationship with, or not on ESPN's YouTube page, but on YouTube. His name's Josh Pate, and he covers the sport wall to wall like we do. Like I, I really think Josh loves football. I really do. I think he wants what's best for college football. And I think there's a lot of people like Josh that watch as much football as they can consume. They love football. They love college football. They are from a certain area. Like Josh is from Georgia. I'm from Texas. My vote, I'm actually originally from Los Angeles, California. My vote is tied to the Atlantic in Charlotte, where I haven't lived in five years. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, like, Josh is from, from Georgia. And yes, he majors in Southeastern football. But you tell me he doesn't know what's going on in the Pac 12. He can't, he can't vote with any credibility on Bo Nix's potential as a Heisman Trophy contender because he's, you know, a southeastern guy, and you know, there's too many voters in the southeast. No, it, the fact that we break it up by regions now is absurd. We have access to games all over the country, like we can watch games everywhere at any time. And by the way, if you missed one on Saturday, you can go back and study it on Sunday if you love it enough. But you know, some guys who have massive platforms and massive radio shows that don't even watch college football. They have votes. They don't even know. They couldn't even tell you the name of the players. They couldn't even tell you the name of like 10 players in college football, but they have a vote because they have a big platform. So I, I think the the outdated approach that the Heisman is voted upon is ridiculous. Um, and I think because of the coverage that the playoff generates, oftentimes you usually just look at well, you know, he, he's the quarterback of a playoff team. He must be pretty good. Look at his numbers. Oh, his numbers are pretty good. Perfect. I'll put him on the ballot. And I also think, too, there's another issue. Like We become a little bit too aligned with stories. Oh, what a great story. 
Like, oh man, what a great story that is. Like, oh, he started out his career as a walk-on, Baker Mayfield. Like, what a great story. Like, he should win the Heisman. He's a former walk-on. That's awesome. That was five years ago. <laughs> like, like, yeah, he was a walk-on because he was undersized. He didn't check the measurable boxes. Like, he's been a starting quarterback at Oklahoma for three years now. Like, he's put up ridiculous numbers. He's not a, quote, walk-on anymore. Like, yeah, it's a great story, but he's not really like an under, he's really not really like an underdog anymore. You know, Stetson Bennett, I think, has some of that right now. Like, Stetson Bennett, walk on, right? Oh, what a great story. Like, they didn't want him. They tried to replace him. Like, yeah, I mean, he's either, is he a Heisman finalist or is he not? Like, is he, is he one of the most outstanding players in college football or not? Like, yeah, great story. But is he one of the top four players in college football? Probably not. And like, is, to me, and I, I've said this, and this is not a knock on Stetson Bennett. Like he's he's a phenomenal football player. He's a great football player. But to me, if I'm really evaluating Heisman contenders off of Georgia's roster, Brock Bowers is the one guy in college football that nobody else has. Like he's a one of one. You know what I mean? So like Brock Bowers for Georgia, I think would make a ton of sense as a Heisman contender. I mean, I think you can make a case if Jalen Carter had missed some time, had been more productive for a 12-game season like Jalen Carter. Divots tackle. He'd be a great candidate if he had maybe played and had a little bit more of an impact on some of the games in the middle of the season. So I, I think that there's there's variations. Like everybody uses the Heisman a little bit differently. The way I look at it is if you take that guy off that team, what does that team look like? Do they crumble upon themselves or are they still pretty good? And honestly, there's a handful of guys that were not named finalists. That if you take them off that team, that team ceases to exist. I'll give you a good example of a guy that I think sums it up beautifully. Also, by the way, another good story. Mo Ibrahim at Minnesota. Now, I'm not saying Mo Ibrahim should win the Heisman Trophy at all. But look at the games where he wasn't available and or the games that he was limited. For instance, Illinois had 15 carries, didn't play against Purdue. Look at what Minnesota's offense did when he wasn't there. You were talking about bad. And look at how many carries he gets. Look at how many yards after contact he gets. Look at his productivity. Coming off of a torn Achilles last year at running back. So I'm not saying that he would, you know, he's the most outstanding player in college football, but those are the guys that I try to identify. Like who are the guys that their team cannot live without, which would have my ballot looking very, very different from that of some of the guys that will be in New York as a Heisman Trophy finalist. Not taking anything away from those guys. I just think there are other candidates that would have been as worthy, if not in some cases more worthy, than some of the guys that ultimately make the trip to New York. All right, that'll do it for us here on a Thursday edition of Always College Football. Thanks for the throwback Thursday. It was fun kind of going through game by game. Georgia's season. I was really excited to kind of revisit some of those moments. Also great to do some low-hanging fruit. And also, hey, congrats to Jeff Brom, man. Super cool. Being able to go back and lead your alma mater. Couldn't be happier for him and couldn't be happier for Louisville. Tomorrow, we still have a lot in store for you. We have Army-Navy coming up. Going to make sure we hit that. One of my favorite games of the year. One of the great traditions in college football. We're going to make sure that you have a good understanding of that. We're going to hit some Heisman talk a little bit about other guys that should be in New York, other guys that should have gotten some consideration, talk a little bit about the voting process and how it can be altered and adjusted to maybe make it better and more seamless in the future. 
And then, of course, we're going to have next week to continue to talk about the portal and the carousel and all the different moving pieces and moving parts that are going on right now in college football. It's a whirlwind, man. So stick with us. We will fill you in with the most up-to-date information that we have available to you tomorrow, to us uh, tomorrow. So a lot that we need to get to still. Stick right here with us here at Always College Football on a daily basis. Please like, rate, and subscribe wherever you're getting the content. It helps us out. It helps the show out. So we look forward to visiting with you. And if you can visit our Instagram and or Twitter page, send us a message. If there's a question that you want to have featured in the mailbag, put it there. You can also send us an email at alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. We look forward to interacting with you. Drop us a note. We'll make sure that we get it into a future episode. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Jack Foster and Mark Kubiak, I'm Greg McElroy. We hope you have a wonderful day. We'll see you tomorrow right here on Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.